0: Our time capsule of a journey has taken us many different places in the look at British folk horror cinema. We've looked at the tomes, the legends of the genre, the archetypes in which not only formed the inspiration and countless images, but also the quirks and tropes that have become staples when discussing the genre at large. When you think of sprawling countrysides you think of small villages, mistrust, whispers behind doors as people stumble into a mystery of sorts and trying to uncover what maybe the locals know that you are not familiar with or can't fathom. These are all things that we would class as being on the checklist of folk horror cinema. You know sprawling, beautiful countrysides that in any given shot could be considered beautiful or foreboding is as intrinsically linked to this style of cinema as would a cursed object in a haunted movie or a silver bullet to take down a werewolf. However, the movie we're going to discuss tonight On season three, chapter three, episode eight, the penultimate one in this series is one that takes that formula, that cinematography, that style, puts it over its knee and breaks its back, delivering something, any genre, that being found footage that should not at any point be able to deliver the style as well as the substance that we have become accustomed to in folk horror cinema. On our penultimate stop in Season 3, we finally get a chance to talk about The Borderlands. Hi everyone, I'm Duncan McLeish, and you're listening to Chronicle Podcast, an almanac of old world horrors. Ignition. And welcome to Chronicle Podcast. This is Season 3, Chapter 3, Episode 8 of our. Look at British Folk Horror Cinema. We have had an incredible season thus far and only one stop remains at the end of this episode. When compiling this list, it became incumbent on me to try and tick off the classics. And when we're discussing that through a British lens, I mean, there's the big three. The totem poles. The templates in which most of the genre has since paid homage to, or reference directly. That being The Wicker Man, Blood and Satan's Claw and The Witchfinder General. Moving forward, we decided to look at the resurgence, the rebirth, so to speak, of the subgenre itself some 30 plus years after its not only emergence but some would consider its heyday. For example, when we looked at Ben Wheatley and Kill List, what was interesting from my point of view is how much Wheatley himself downplays the ideas of the influence of a movie like Wicker Man, whereas ourselves, cinephiles, fans of the genre sit there and can't, you know, disassociate it. It's almost impossible for me to look at that movie and not see a massive vein leading from the Wicker Man itself directly into that movie. But what Wheatley does that kind of solidified its place in folk horror cinema is specifically the use of those amazing shots of cinematography. The land, the small towns, the villages, all becomes part and parcel. When compiling that list and looking at the more modern entries, we could have easily just ran the train on Ben Wheatley himself because he keeps coming back in the movies to that idea but there is a blip there's an anomaly that comes out in 2013 a found footage movie in a genre not known for delivering movies with a degree of high quality cinematography one that is more personable or personal one that forces you into the intimate space of the mindset of a character up close it's not a genre that lends itself to what we have covered thus far, but to be honest, I kind of should. When we think about the impact of what we've seen thus far, the idea of our character stumbling through mystery, with lofty ideas of his faith, his belief, or his justification for being there, slowly subsumed by the surroundings whether that's by the people themselves or by the belief system that they hold dear. And then his unrelenting hubris, his inability, his rigidness to the core belief values that he has, ultimately becoming prey, folly or sacrifice to something that he couldn't fathom or something he refused to acknowledge or believe. When we lay it out like that, a technique that would actually work would be very interesting, one that would yield potentially the greatest frights, tension and scares, is one that would put the camera at eye level, the audience in the headset, in the mind of the protagonist. That being found footage. It drives audiences through a mystery at the eye level of that protagonist, that they two feel and are equally disorientated with that journey themselves. It's a movie that, from the beginning, you have an idea, you think you know where it's going. The Borderlands is a movie that makes you say, I've seen a found footage movie before. I watched that Blair Witch. This movie's ultimately going to end with people running around in the woods and leave me blue-balled with a lack of explanation. Or maybe it's a kind of found footage movie that makes you say, I've seen a found footage movie before, I watched that paranormal activity. Ultimately, something's going to sweep our main character off his feet and kill him with some supernatural presence. Or maybe it's the sort of found footage movie that makes you say, I've seen a found footage movie before. The character's inexplicably hold on to these cameras much longer than any rational person should. But you've never seen The Borderlands. Such a simple concept that it's almost too simple to work. But by God, this movie has an ending, which in the pantheon of great horror endings is up near the top. Where the movie really shines is its idea and perception of faith. Unwavering, unbridled, unbroken faith. The idea that your belief, your rationale, your outlook, your way that you yourself contextualise your surroundings in the world are as linear as the words of a book. And you put your faith in that. That trust is wholly there. Once again, think back to Edward Woodward arriving on Summer Isle. He's a man of the law. He's a man of one book, the book of the law, and the other book, the Bible. And the two might meet in certain places and they might diverge in others, but they are tangible. They are things you can hold on to, words you can read and believe in and grasp. And that's the setup for this movie. In the case of this one, in the Borderlands, what we have is an investigation from the Vatican into unexplained occurrences which may be heralded as a miracle in a local church in England. They've dispatched these two priests of sorts and one regular atheist as um, investigators. Imagine kind of the Vatican's own X-Files, their own Mulder and Scully... These men of the cloth are also men of science and appear to have the job of debunking what may be considered uh, miracles by certain strands of the cloth that may be trying to seek uh, uptake in their flock or a false media presence by inadvertently or deliberately creating a false narrative of Miracle themselves, unexplained activity. We have our priest and his sidekick there to document the occurrences, donning GoPros, setting up cameras in a local church, and trying to investigate some of the spooky occurrences. Things are moving. Noises are heard, banging, groaning. Is the priest hiding something? Is there maybe something going on? He looks a little bit unhinged. Slightly unstable. Could this just be a cry for attention? And from the off, things feel very familiar to the tropes we've seen in other folk horror cinema. We see very quickly that the locals don't engage... In any sort of polite or nuanced banter with the people investigating. In fact, they're downright hostile. In one scene, when they're looking for directions, this old man just stares at them through their car window, not answering to any question delivered. Or at the local pub, things feel fairly confrontational. Even the local kids are unwelcoming. And downright scary. An iconic scene of a sheep set on fire and plummeting towards the door of there. Another example of the tomfoolery that the Thames people are playing in the background. Once again, this could just be a trick. This could be an elaborate prank by local Thames folk to make a naive priest believe in miracles. We're going to dig further into that investigation though because there's something going on. Unexplained events are picked up on the cameras while the priests aren't there. Weird noises. And then you start to get a bit of background to our characters. The priest himself, Deacon, who has been charged with investigating has a shady past of sorts. Something happened at a previous investigation and he's not inclined or predisposed to talk about it. As the movie moves on we realise that his unbridled faith, his blindness to accept the divinity of God and miracles uh, caused some of his colleagues to die horribly and as a result he's kind of a broken character now. Drinks too much, you know, is maybe slightly cynical towards the word of the Bible but believes in his core that there is in fact a God. His superior on sight is a man that is very dismissive of all these things while once again believing strongly in God. It's kind of oxymoronic that the word of science and the word of God, blind faith itself, are so intrinsically linked in the movie. And it's what adds to its charm. Because as we travel further down the explanation of what's going on, we start to realise that there's a Local history in the UK. This history is fairly popular throughout the rest of the world. That when the Catholics were expanding their churches to the lands that they'd never been before, they would essentially build them on where local sites of worship were. In the case of this one, pagans and druid sites. People are already used to going to these places to worship. So if you build your church there then it's not too much of a stretch that people will see these sites as holy and come there. It's how you acclimate your religion to a foreign population. Assimilation by assimilation. But there is a problem about that. The dismissive nature of one religion against another might belie danger. And that's where the borderland Shines. For this movie starts to unravel a mystery of human sacrifice to a pagan deity. Something that seems to be awoken in the grounds of the church. Something that has the ability to control the will of others, distort your vision and also the ability to trap you. In the most iconic scene of this movie, the very end, our characters are led down underneath the church. And previously we found it about human sacrifices, that of babies. And they travel from room to room finding the skeletons of babies. And it's a horrific scene to behold. But once again. We're dealing with found footage. It's going to end up at some point with characters chasing characters and ultimately ending in a position where they themselves are trapped. And that's what happens here as well. There's nothing new. They're bringing nothing new to the table yet. Because as our characters get further trapped in the alcoves underneath this church in these caved areas... ...that pagans would worship. They realise that they've went too far... ...into what they think is another cavern. Only to realise that the cavern they're in... ...is very much alive. It's a really interesting ending. It's the sort of ending that you wish you'd wrote yourself... ...if you were writing a book... And not only is it leaning into the idea specifically of that kind of folk horror paganism, that ultimate religion, the thing that you don't believe, you don't want to believe, but are ultimately faced with it in the most tragic moments at the end. But there are shades of Lovecraft in here as well. The idea of these old beings, these otherworldly gods that consume mortals for food and sport. That's there in here as well. It's a weird marriage, an amalgamation of ideas, themes and concepts that delivers one of the greatest endings in horror history. And it shouldn't work. But it does. The movie itself has fairly beautiful cinematography. We spend act time in one iconic scene with our characters walking up towards a church, surrounded by the dark greenery of night time in the fields. They're all festooned with their religious gear, their outfits. And they're heading to break the curse. They're heading to exercise a belief from the land. And it's arrogance, it's hubris, that word that we come back to in most of the episodes when discussing folk horror and it works. It works too well. The Borderlands is a movie which made many lists at the time and was considered a darling of the festival circuit but a movie which maybe dropped off the scene not long after. It's not a movie that rolls off the tongue when you speak about British folk horror cinema. It doesn't have the accolades and the praise and the the, the reverence that a movie like Kill List does as a modern day folk horror piece of cinema. But it's there. It very much is supplanted within the genre. It takes the ideas. Once again, that tick box we stated right back at the start of the season. It's all in here. It's just in a different package A different wrapping And when you get into it You start to really understand that This idea maybe could only ever work once And they better land it right And that's what they do here In the closing scenes of this movie You are treated to something so horribly divine That your eyes will almost struggle to grasp what it's seeing. In the final scene of this movie, we're left with the idea that blind arrogance and hubris is something that can consume you. Literally. You've been listening to Chronicle Podcast. This has been Season 3, Chapter 3, Episode 8. The penultimate episode of our season. We're looking at The Borderlands. It's a great movie. If you're in the UK, it's available on Amazon Prime. Check it out. We've only one stop left and a movie substitution. Originally planned, we were going to close out Season 3... With a little look at another Ben Wheatley outing. We're going to look at a field in England. A movie which is unabashedly the movie which I think the director himself would say is very much footed in the idea of folk horror. And it almost felt too easy. It almost felt like, yeah, all roads were going to lead here from the start. And as a result I kind of re-examined my list and when I did that I realised there's a movie that I've always really wanted to get in-depth on and do something a bit longer on it uh, as a way to close out this season and it's my show <laughs> uh, and I can do what I want and as a result we swapped the movie out. So closing this season of Chronicle Podcast for 2020, looking at folk horror cinema, we're going to look at a movie which floored me the first time I saw it and has done the subsequent two or three times I've watched it since. We're going to be looking at a movie called A Dark Song from 2015. I want to thank everyone for the support on the t Collective feeds. Uh, all the support you're showing the shows that we have launched this year whether it's the return of Chronicle podcast the return of Doing the Nasty our season one of Opera Omnia which has just come to a close and a season two kicking off in mere days now with another phenomenal director in the crosshairs as well as where to begin with Jallo a show that is a nerdy, geeky little passion project which indulges my obsession with subgenres of horror cinema. Your support and subscribing to the Teapots Collective feed ensures that I have a metric that can gauge how popular the shows are and continue to do them. Like I've said many times before, if no one's listening, there's no point in doing them. Please join the Facebook group page for the show though. It's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash chronicle podcast. It's a fairly inactive group, if I'm honest, but I do enjoy posting things over there and keeping news updated. And in a position where we are so close to closing out this season, we will be very soon dropping little ideas in the page as to where we will turn for season number four, come in early 2021. This episode of Chronicle Podcast was written, recorded and produced by me, For you. Join me next month as we close out this season by looking at a dark song. But until then, remember, if God is willing to prevent evil, but not able, then he is not omnipotent. If he's able, but not willing, then he is malevolent. If he's both able and willing, then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why? call him God. This is Duncan McLeish for Chronicle Podcast, an almanac of old world horrors. Until the next time. Ignition. T-10, 9, 8 7, 6, 5 4, 3 2, 1, 0 Lift off.